Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I remember that name coming all the time. And so honestly, when this book came out and when people were starting to suggest it, I'm like, oh yeah, he's the guy that did the bombing. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I was very inspired this week by all the athletes I've been following on Instagram. And one of the things that the athletes seem to do a lot of is get manicures. Oh. The, the track and field people get all their manicures, mm-hmm. the divers, the swimmers, they all have these beautiful nails. So for the first time since 1996 which is an important year in our discussion for today, I got a manicure. Oh, very nice. I bet your hands are happy. They are happy and they are already scratching because I just can't be bothered to be careful with it. I'm like, I got to clean the dishes. I got to do manual labor. So I really don't know how those athletes, especially the swimmers, keep their nails looking so beautiful. I know. I I don't understand. I don't get manicures very often either. And I'm not a big nail polish person. So I don't understand how that whole system works. So I'm flashing back to 1996 in honor of our show this week. Very, very good. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, we would like to thank our Patreon patron of the week. That is Don Whalen. And Don is loyal listener, has been a Patreon patron for a long time, so we really appreciate your support. And Don, as we've mentioned, he and his wife, Liz, have the blog Sprockets of Fire, and they're reviewing all of the official Olympic films that have been released. And it's a fun read. I really appreciate having Don as a listener, and uh, thank you very much. If you would like to be involved with the show and support us uh, financially, we would appreciate that as well. Go to patreon.com slash olimfever and learn more. So 1996, as you mentioned, important year for the show this week because we are going back to Atlanta 1996 and the bombing that happened during the Olympics. And that is the subject of our book club book, 
this episode and that means book club claire is back to talk with us and we love it when she's on the show so take a listen to our conversation we are back reviewing the book called the suspect and olympic bombing the fbi the media and richard jewell the man caught in the middle by kent alexander and kevin salwin i gotta say compared to the last book that we did with munich 1972 this one was very much a page turner. All right, guys, I want to know your opinion on this. What do you think? I very much agree. It moved extremely quickly, and there wasn't a lot of wasted space. Oh, man, it was such a good book. I was enthralled. Yeah, it was a page turner. I, I have to know what your experiences with 96 were. It's funny because the summer of 96 was right before I got married. I got married in that fall. So I have very few memories of that Olympics, strangely did, enough, because I was obviously not focused on it. I remember the bombing. I remember the gymnastics. And that's about it, which is so strange. You know, it was also a strange Olympics for me, too. I was out of college, but I was in this weird period where I was temping and I didn't have money. So I remember watching the opening ceremonies in my little studio apartment and clapping and crying when Muhammad Ali lit the oh. torch. And then I do remember the bombing. I kind of remember it on like I was at a bar or something and it was on a big screen TV. Not the just the aftermath of things, not the actual bombing itself. And then I also remember the gymnastics because John Tesh was one of the announcers. It was John. It was the year of John Tesh and Elfie Schlegel on NBC, and it was just yes. Oh my gosh! And and Lee Schwang was the big male gymnast, and then so John Tesh would say Lee Schwang all the time. And then after the Olympics, I was at the Democratic convention because that is that one tiny fact that really you know it doesn't mean the whole book is bad, but you know there's something that's wrong and it sticks in you when bobby did her press conference and they said in the book at the bottom of page 200 it says clearly going on offense was working for the jewel team wood urged his fellow attorneys to think bigger he wanted to set an event to coincide with the start of the democratic national convention which was opening in atlanta the last week of august and this was when bobby's press conference was the problem was that the convention was not in atlanta it was in chicago that year because oh. I volunteered the whole week there. So that was the one tiny fact in the whole book that was like, oh, you got this one wrong. And I went back and looked at the Vanity Fair article that the movie is also based on. And that author, Marie Brenner, says it a little differently because she also mentioned that the Democratic Convention was coming. So the strategy may have been to have it coincide with the Democratic Convention because it was a plea to Bill Clinton and all eyes were going to be on President Clinton at that week. But she did not mention that where the convention would be. Did that sort of make you feel like you couldn't trust the author's fact checking? Um, it stuck in my head for the rest of the book. I will say so, that. So when it was revealed that Don Johnson was probably Kathy Scruggs' source, did you kind of go, oh, or were you kind of like, hmm? Are you no, sure? No, I was, I was more the first, the first one. Where it's like, okay. oh, okay. But then that all put together the whole big picture of Don Johnson being this agent who really wanted the big catch. Like he was the one who had the hero complex, not right? Richard Jewell. And Richard Jewell, I just, when I was 11, 
96 mm-hmm. happened. So I was not in the adult world yet for sure. But I do remember like when my mom would watch the news in the evening, she usually watched ABC, I think. But I remember that name coming all the time. And so honestly, when this book came out and when people were starting to suggest it, I'm like, oh yeah, he's the guy that did the bombing. And then I had to read some more and go, oh, no, he didn't. And I just kept thinking it because the media that I heard when I was a kid just kept talking about Richard Jewell. And so I just assumed all these years later, almost 25 years, that, oh, yeah, he was the guy that did it. So it was great for me to be told wrong through this book and to see what a great guy Richard Jewell was. Yes, he made mistakes. He tried to be a police officer when he didn't have the things that he was supposed to have to show that he was a police officer, you know, like a badge. But he always meant well. He had good intentions for the things that he was doing. And on that night, he saved hundreds of lives. In a sense, like, I got the impression that Richard Jewell was the epitome of excellence in the police world and the security world except that he kept getting in his own way with like overstepping his boundaries too hard but like when he signed himself up for all this extra training and he studied so hard and knew all of these things and all of the proper procedures but he just kept getting in his own way with having to be the best and he wasn't always in the environment where they wanted the best out of him so it was kind of interesting that he was part of the Olympics, which is the epitome of being the best. What I found interesting in the book was I had a very different take on Richard Jewell than both of you, it seems. He was not some, I mean, I what happened to him was totally wrong. I did not like him. I did not think he was trying to be the best. I thought there was nobody in this book that I liked. Oh, interesting. Very there was interesting. nobody in this book that I felt like I could root for and cheer for. Absolutely, Richard Jewell, what happened to him was wrong, and he was a victim, and it was horrible. And there's no excuse for what was done to him. And he was a hero. And I would not have been friends with him. Oh, I don't think I would have been friends with him either. But Yeah. <laughs> Just everybody involved in this case, you know, Kathy Scruggs and Don Johnson, just were awful people. It's like everything around this event brought out the worst in these not very great people, with the exception, I have to say, of Richard Jewell. And it brought out the thing that he could do really well, which was, you know, kind of follow procedure, follow the rules and do what he was supposed to do. It's odd that all that prep and practice and getting ready and training to be what he wanted to be ended up shooting himself in the foot because everybody's like, oh, he has so many guns. Oh, he's taking all these classes. Oh, this must mean that all of this points to it, which kind of led to Don Johnson assuming this guy is the guy. We have the guy. And led to the media latching onto it and saying, this must be the guy. You know, even was it Tom Brokaw who kind of let the cat out of the bag and said some things that he could have said better, but instead pointed it at Richard Jewell and then got NBC into a bunch of legal hot water for so long. You know, it's it's amazing to see how that worked against Richard Jewell. Um, I want to know what you thought about the media coverage of it all. Did you remember it? And did anything come up in hindsight? I remember it 
But what I remember more, strangely enough, was how it seemed like the coverage of the Olympics just went on. It wasn't, I mean, it was on the evening news, but the Olympics just kind of, yes, this happened. Yes, this was horrible. And now we're moving on. It didn't stick in my brain as to when it happened in the context and how much was still left and what things were going on. And it felt, and again, this is memory playing with you. It was almost like it happened separate from the Olympics. Like in my head, I was like, was that the closing? Was that like closing ceremonies or was that like right before it started? Like it didn't even happen within the days of the events because it felt like, okay, the sports just kept going and and that was what the focus was. Yeah, that was it was really interesting how that played out. And because, yeah, I, I don't remember quite the timeline, but it did seem like it happened early on. And then the media coverage was pretty intense. And then you kind of forget about it, except for, you know, that was one of the first big 24-hour news stories in the era of 24-hour news. And I think that was just media wanting to have an answer. And when the, one of the interesting things about the, the book was just how many tips and leads that the FBI had to follow in order to try to find out who did this event to try to find out who did the bombing and that takes so much time to go through but the media is not giving them time i do remember the media coverage and it's weird because i remember that was a that was a friday night we we didn't have air conditioning in our house for a long time so on the super hot nights we would ask, can we sleep in the basement, please? Because we had a half-furnished basement. That's where my brother, my older brother slept. So we would beg our parents, can we sleep in the basement with Matt? And he, they usually say yes, because it wasn't a big deal. But I remember sleeping down there. And then I think it was my dad came down that morning, Saturday morning, and said there was a bombing at a band concert at the Olympics. And, you know, this is my 11-year-old brain. I automatically think of, like, a marching band that's like playing on the stage. <laughs> I don't think of a rock concert because when you say rock concert, that's what you think. But he said a band concert. So I'm thinking, oh, those poor marching band people up on the stage. It must have been like right behind it because, you know, when you watch like movies and stuff, they always plant the bomb behind the band or something. So that's what I perceived. So when I went upstairs to watch the coverage, I watched a lot of the coverage initially. So I remember the big tower with the canvas that was blown through. I remember that day, I think, watching the Janet Evans interview that the foreign media was doing at the Centennial Olympic Park, where you could hear the bomb go off and see things in the background. I remember watching that and going, oh, that's what it was. Okay. But after that, you're right, it kind of just petered out for me uh, once, you know, Michael Johnson started to, to win races and things like that. But if you kept into it, like, I guess my mom was always watching it, you kind of heard more and more about this, but you never heard about the Eric Rudolph stuff because it happened so late. They didn't catch him for so long. For I months. I could not believe it. I didn't even know he had done more bombings that were connected to him. And to hear all of that just was creepy. It's like how he how he worked, how, what his mindset was, the people he targeted. It's just it was very unsettling to know that they never had that guy at all. Right. And I think that was probably your memory of Richard Jewell was the bomber because the actual bomber, Eric Rudolph, 
was not named or caught or tried. I mean, for months, you know, nothing years. happened. Yeah, years. I remember when his name first came out and there was the manhunt for him and thinking, oh, we never caught the guy who did that bombing? Yeah. It was such a, you know, like we were being sent back in time. It's interesting because, yeah, when you think about the bombing because of the news coverage right around it for so long, Richard Jewell's name just inexorably gets tied to that event. So when, yeah, it takes them years to come up with Eric Rudolph. I loved the part in the book where they go into his backstory and it was so detailed and so creepy that you wonder like, oh my gosh, how many more people like this are out there? And is there any way to reach them and try to bring them back to reality before they do something horribly heinous like Rudolph got away with again and again? It's upsetting that in two very different countries, two very different eras, so many people jump to the conclusion that they know what's going on instead of kind of that basic idea of work the facts. You know, what do we actually know? What do we actually have in front of us? That there was all this jumping to conclusions with really tragic consequences in in both situations. And that scared me a little bit in the sense of, I don't know if that culture within law enforcement has changed. I don't know if that culture within society has changed because now you added the proliferation of the internet and you need to know everything immediately. And the jumping to conclusions or having anytime some major event happens and all of the news cycles or all of the the TV stations put their 24-hour analysts, quote-unquote analysts, on it, they've got nothing to talk about because the facts take a long time to go through. And, and that's we don't have the patience for that. So that's when you get all this conjecture and uh, guessing. And it really, I think, makes things worse rather than better. I think that puts the blame on the media. And because now everybody is media. If you have a phone and you have a social media account, you are media now. So you feel like, okay, I don't know anything, but I saw what I saw. So I'm going to tell you about it and assume that I know everything. So it takes uh, people to really say, hold on, step back, let's assess the actual facts that we have. And even those people are kind of seen as, oh, well, you you don't know anything, you know, you don't, you don't know anything, so that's why you're telling us to not report this stuff. When in reality, they're just trying to figure out the truth. And that's, that's something that in the book, uh, Kick Richard Jewell, and he, with his personality could not really go on the offensive until he got his lawyers involved, which I thought was pretty entertaining, but it's, it takes those kinds of people to say, Hey, this is not right. Or else people are just going to take it and run with it. And then, you know, a year later, everybody's like, Oh, well we were wrong. My bad. Let's move on. Here's another breaking thing. Overall thoughts of the book. Jill, we'll start with you. No, I really, really enjoyed this book. I thought it was really well-written. The one fact notwithstanding, but very compelling. It draws you in. Whenever they went to go talk about somebody's backstory, I was wondering, okay, so where is this going? How does, how does this tie in? I agree, like, the people who were trying to be heroes in their respective fields just made the whole situation worse with uh, Don Johnson, with Kathy Scruggs, and the, the people trying to be a hero 
and the pressure of trying to be a hero quickly made this case more difficult than it probably needed to be. And then also, I can't imagine the pressure of dealing with all of those media requests. Having people outside your house 24-7, having them rent an apartment right down the complex road because they want to keep an eye on you so they can follow you if you go outside so they have new video to share. Having all of the talk show hosts send you information requests and interview requests and not, not really knowing how to handle it well. I mean, you can get media coaching and training, but there a lot of times just you're still a regular person. And I think part of that was... You know, being a regular person that played to Bobby's strengths when she did have that press conference and did make that impassioned plea. But it also kind of works against you sometimes because people keep watching it and replaying it and they find more and more to dislike about it. So it's really hard. I I mean, this is a really sad story in that innocent until proven guilty wasn't the case. And I think that since then within history, I think that's become less and less of a, a thing having people because we want to find the guilty person instantly. So everybody's now kind of guilty whenever a name is brought up. But it was a great read. I really thought this was a good book and uh, I would highly recommend it. I agree that the book itself was so well put together and I found the background on everybody very well done, very compelling and not a stop to the progression of the story. You know, sometimes when they go into backstory, you're like, why are you telling me all this? But it made perfect sense. And it really lifted the book to a different level. I found this book difficult to read in the sense of, as I said before, I didn't like anybody. I didn't root for anybody. I felt like everybody was doing the wrong thing over and over and over again and making it worse for everybody else involved. And this need to be the star, the hero, the center of attention, under the guise of, I'm just doing my job, really, in the end, destroyed people's lives. And this excuse of, well, I'm just doing my job, I'm just reporting the facts. No, you're not. You know, And the same thing with, with law enforcement. We're just trying to find who did it. Yeah, but, so I don't think anybody, I don't think the media, I don't think law enforcement, I don't even think... ACOG, or I don't think anybody came out of the situation looking good, which is very sad to me because I think in, I think everybody's intention was good, but their ego got in the way and ended up ultimately causing Richard Jewell's early death and all kinds of disruption for the rest of his, his circle. I found it a painful read in that sense because you could see it. You just want to slap people and say, what are you doing? You know, Richard Jewell is a person. These people you're interviewing are persons. The victims are people, not just a step on your progression to your next Pulitzer Prize or your next promotion. I think that takes a lot of this type of person and the type of personality into account with Kathy and Don both being such a certain type of person where we're going to get our information. We don't really care what blocks we have to do. We just have that singular mindset. And I know people like that. They're hard to work with at times because they're so narrowly focused and they're hard to get along with because of that. And you're trying to think of all these options and they think, no, this is how it's got to be. And 
to see both of them, the FBI and Don Johnson in particular, be so focused, I think that really took away from it. If if Don Johnson had been any different personality or someone else entirely had been on the case, everything would have turned out differently. But you have to you have to kind of understand that. My personal thought of the book was that it's up there with the books that we've read so far. I would still put Boys in the Boat near the top, but this would be like second underneath it. And I don't know if I've read anything that we've had for book club where I was still reading chapters. There was one night over Christmas break where usually I just read a chapter night and then I put it away, but I kept reading and I finished. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'm done. Okay. And I really was enamored with the book. There were a couple of, of spots, like when they were covering FBI stuff near the end of the book, where I was kind of like, okay, we can move on. Let's get on to people again. But to see how it all turned out, to know that it does conclude, yes, it's been 24 years, but they, they do talk about the Eric Rudolph arresting and, and where he is now. And it did end on a sad note because... Eric Rudolph is the only one still alive of the of the main players, you would say. Richard Jewell died. John Johnson died. Kathy Scruggs died. They're all dead, so they can't come out and tell their story. And the only one is is the man who actually did the bombing. And that's that's kind of a depressing thing. So I love this book, and if you haven't read it yet, you really should. Um, any other closing thoughts before we move to our next book? Overall, good book. Yeah, it was a great choice. I mean, I really loved it. It was a nice antidote to Munich, 1972. Mm, Yes. Well, it it is time to reveal our next book club book, which is a super exciting story. Jill, do you want to explain how we got to this book? We got an email from the author who asked if he could be on the show. And talk about the book and we decided that it was you know we took a look at the materials and thought it would be a great choice for book club yeah and the book is called games of deception the true story of the first u.s olympics basketball team at the 1936 olympics in hitler's germany the author is andrew marinus and he lives in Tennessee in Nashville and he's written a couple of books that are actually geared towards young adults so middle school high school age so you will find that this book is a bit shorter than basically every book that we've read we've read some (laughs) giant tomes 400 pages I think this one's only 250 pages I'm excited for this book. We are going back to 1936. We are seeing a different side. And for the first time, we are dealing with the sport of basketball. Thank you so much, Claire. Claire also had a chance to get a preview of our next book from the author, Andrew Marinus. Take a listen. Andrew Marinus is a New York Times bestselling author whose first book, Strong Inside, was named one of the top 10 biographies for youth by the American Library Association. He currently serves as a visiting author at Vanderbilt University Athletics and is director of Vandy's Sports and Society Initiative. His new book, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, just hit shelves in November. His target audience is middle and high school age students, but gives readers of all ages a chance to hear a little known area of a largely well-known Olympics. Andrew, thanks so much for meeting with me today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Claire. This is uh, my pleasure. What drew you to the 1936 games after so many books, movies, documentaries have actually covered it? 
Yeah, well, that was one of the fun things about this book for me was the fact that it was a pretty well chronicled Olympics, and yet this story of the first United States Olympic basketball team and the fact that this was the first Olympics where basketball was played is largely an unknown story. You know, I don't, I don't think most people realize this is where basketball got its Olympic start. I was first drawn to this story when I was in Lawrence, Kansas, to speak about my last book, which you mentioned, Strong Inside. And being a big college basketball fan, I really wanted to see Allen Fieldhouse, where the Jayhawks play. And I took a tour there, and they have a picture of James Naismith with some Japanese basketball players from the 1930s alongside an exhibit of Naismith's original rules of basketball. And so I was really intrigued by this, and the person showing me around said, did you know that the inventor of basketball, James Naismith, was able to see his invention make its Olympic debut? And I I didn't know that. And when I asked him, which Olympics was that? And he said it was the 36 Olympics, such a controversial games. uh, I figured, well, wow, this could really be um, a subject of a great book. And what I try to do in my books is tell sports stories, but not just for the sports sake alone, but, you know, stories with a larger social message to them. And I figured I could, of course, do that with an Olympics that took place in Nazi Germany. Before we get to the social aspect, uh, how was the basketball competition different from the basketball that we know in the 21st century? Uh, It was very different, especially, you know, even just the court that they played on was outside. They didn't play on a basketball court in a gymnasium. They played on clay tennis courts that had been converted into basketball courts. And it worked out fine for the first few rounds of the tournament, but the gold medal game between the United States and Canada was played in a big rainstorm. So the court turned into a giant mud puddle. The players couldn't dribble the ball. It just gets stuck in the mud. The ball itself got really waterlogged and heavy. And so uh, it was a pretty bad basketball game. Not that the players were bad. One of the American players, Joe Fortenberry, is considered the first basketball player uh, ever to dunk uh, basketball. He did it in a game at Madison Square Garden in the qualifying tournament. Other players were um, stars of the AAU leagues back then. That's where the best basketball players played at the time. After they graduated from college, there was no NBA. And so they played for company teams uh, as a way to market the companies by having a basketball team with their name on their jerseys traveling around. And so these two teams that met in the United States qualifying tournament championship game were combined to become the U.S. Olympic basketball team. One of them, uh, the guys worked at an oil refinery in McPherson, Kansas, and the other team, they worked at Universal Pictures in Hollywood. And so these were the guys that represented the United States at at those Olympics. Wow, that's fascinating to have guys that work at Hollywood do this kind of thing. (laughs) Um, What what made them turn into basketball players? Do you know? Well, most of them had, had played college basketball previously. The guys from the L.A. team had mostly played at UCLA, Um, And then they just would uh, get jobs because there really wasn't a a future as a professional basketball player. Universal had a makeup artist named Jack Pierce. Uh, He created the look of Frankenstein. Like When we think of the Frankenstein movies, it was Jack Pierce that made those costumes and, and the makeup. But he was a big basketball fan, and he's the one that started the basketball team at the studio. And so he would hire former college basketball players to work at the movie studio, and they would be paid for that, for their work at the studio, and they would maintain their amateur status, which was important for the Olympics, by playing for the company basketball team. And he would dress up some of these guys as the movie characters before the games as a way to promote their movies in the days before 
TV and internet. You know, uh, one way they promoted their movies was in person at the games, having players dress up like Frankenstein and then change into their uniforms once the game started. Well, this was the first real time that basketball uh, was known worldwide and played at the Olympics for sure. Why was it selected, do you think, or does the book tell us, uh, since it was a relatively new sport? Yes. Yeah, so it, uh, Naismith had invented basketball in 1891. So this is 45 years after the game had been invented. And it is surprising to think that a game that was you know, just invented at one gym in Massachusetts in 1891 could grow internationally to the point that it could be played in the Olympics within the lifetime of the inventor. So Naismith was able to go to Berlin to see his, his game played there. Fog Allen, it was the the main driving force behind basketball being included in the Olympics. He's the one that Allen Fieldhouse at Kansas is named after. He was the protege of Naismith. He became the head coach at Kansas. He was really a sort of a visionary in terms of the growth of basketball. And he, he's responsible for the creation of the NCAA tournament, uh, March Madness, you know, and he was also pushing for basketball to be included in the Olympics. And he was lobbying for several Olympics prior to 36. He thought he'd be successful in Los Angeles in 1932, uh, but they turned him down. But he had contacts inside of Nazi Germany, including a guy named Fritz Zwicky, who he had coached at a basketball clinic in the United States. So he went back to Germany, where he was from, and became a, a, a member of the Hitler Youth uh, leadership of that organization. And so Allen actually had contacts inside of Nazi Germany that were helping to lobby for basketball to be included. And I think one reason why basketball was included is because the Nazis were very concerned that the United States might boycott those Olympics, and they didn't want that to happen. They, they knew that they would lose the propaganda value of the Olympics if the U.S. didn't participate. And so I think that there was some feeling among the Germans that if they included this American sport of basketball, it would be another reason why there would be support to go to those Olympics coming from the United States. They also included a baseball exhibition game. It wasn't a medal sport, but just an exhibition game. And I think they did that for the same reason. That is fascinating. Nazi propaganda can't be avoided when we discuss the Olympics of 1936. Uh, how does the book cover these games of deception and the anti-Semitism that pervaded Germany at the time? Yes, that's a big part of the book. And obviously, it's the most important part of the book is I do take a close look at the anti-Semitism in Germany uh, leading up to the Olympics. What was the situation there and comparing it to what life was like in the United States for Jewish people, also African-American people and other minorities. And I write extensively about the boycott effort and to the, you know, trying to look at the question of how much did people in the United States really understand about what was happening in Germany at that time. A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, we didn't really know at that point. But there, it's not true. There were people that were paying attention who did know. There was 100,000 people that marched through the streets of New York City to protest Hitler's regime and, and the idea of us participating in the Olympics and the college basketball team at Long Island University that could have participated in the qualifying tournament and would have been one of the favorites. They were undefeated in the best team in college basketball. They voted as a team not to even play in the U.S. qualifying tournament because they knew that they wouldn't go to Berlin, that they would protest Hitler. Uh, so there were people that knew. I found a man who's now 97 years old, uh, who lives in Cincinnati. His name is Dr. Al Miller. At the time of the Olympics, he was a 13-year-old Jewish kid living in Berlin uh, who went to the Olympics and, you know, was being bullied at his school because he was Jewish. He saw stormtroopers 
marching down the street singing their anti-Semitic songs. And so I have a first-person account of what it was like to be a Jewish middle schooler in Berlin at the time of the Olympics. And that is what I hope will be the takeaway from this book is not necessarily anything to do with basketball, although that is an important part of the book, but what life was like at that moment in history and what can we learn from that? What influence did you take from your parents? Because as uh, our readers might know, uh, your dad, David, wrote one of our other book club books, uh, Rome 1960. So what influence did you take from him and also your mother as you were writing this book and your other books too? (laughs) Well, thanks for mentioning my parents. And that's cool that we've got a father and son who have written books that have been in your book club. A big influence, not necessarily specifically related to this book, but just the idea of writing. You know, I I grew up, my father was a newspaper journalist as I was growing up. He started writing books after I graduated from college. And so I've always had a writer in the family, sort of a role model, but also uh, obviously I've been reading a lot because I wanted to read what my dad was writing all these years. And so I think just through osmosis, if nothing else, I picked up a lot of tips on writing from him. My mom's a great editor. Uh, When I send my chapters home to my parents for them to check out, I always get good edits back from her. My dad has sort of purposely kept a hands-off approach to my um, writing so that I'll know that I've really done it without the heavy influence of an accomplished author. You know, and at first that was frustrating to me when I was writing my book, Strong Inside. I would get edits back from my mom and not from him, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and best-selling author. And I was like, I'd love to hear from you too. But in the end, I felt proud that I had done it without a lot of his, you know, fingerprints on my book. What should our readers especially look for as they read the book? Well, a couple of things. One, I hope they'll enjoy the basketball story. To me, it's really just amazing to think about a student, James Naismith, being challenged to come up with a new game to keep his classmates busy in the winter, and that one day there was a world without basketball, and the next day there's a world with basketball. And We know when the first basketball game was played, there's a sketch of it that was done by a Japanese student who was watching the game. And then that sport spreads throughout the world so quickly at a time when there really wasn't much technology to speak of. Like, how did this happen? You know, and I think that's a remarkable story that the way that this team was formed, guys from the middle of, this, of Kansas, a small town in Kansas, matched up with, with players from, from Hollywood, uh, makes for an interesting story. And then putting that in the context of the place and the time. So Berlin in 1936, before World War II, and uh, just the seeing this uh, Nazi Germany through the eyes of the Olympic athletes, I think, makes for a really compelling story. And then at the end of the book, I reintroduced Dr. Al Miller, the man I mentioned earlier, who was the 13-year-old kid in Berlin, and he talks about the fact that he's a witness. He was a witness to this horrible moment in world history, and you know his parents snuck him out of Germany so he wouldn't be killed in the Holocaust, and he still feels this responsibility to tell his story. And he meets with school kids in Cincinnati twice a month now to talk about the Holocaust and the lessons he learned. And I asked him, what do you tell the kids when they ask you, how do we make sure nothing like this ever happens again? And he said he tells the kids that they already know the answer. And they've already said it out loud that morning with their hand over their heart when they recited the Pledge of Allegiance. And it's the the most important thing to remember, he said, He tells them is the last five words of the pledge, which are liberty and justice for all. And when you keep that in mind, we're in good shape. When we forget the for all part, then we've seen the terrible things that can happen. And so I hope that people, as they're reading the book, look for those types of messages as well. 
Well, Andrew, we are very excited to read this book. Thanks for meeting with us and giving us some additional insight before we get to that first chapter. Oh, thank you so much. I love uh, a chance to talk about the book. I appreciate podcasts uh, like yours. Thank you, Claire. And Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show. We're really excited to read your book and First Father Son. I know. When we picked this book, I didn't make the connection. And then when you and I and Claire were uh, setting up for recording, you mentioned that David Marinus and Andrew Marinus are a father-son author team, which I loved, which makes me more excited for this book. Exactly. And David uh, wrote Rome 1960, which we read. uh, It was one of our first book club picks. So uh, that was also a really good read. So we are excited to see what Andrew's book is all about. You can pick up a copy of Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. Uh, we will have links to buying it on Amazon on our website, olimfever.com slash book hyphen club. And if you shop through those links on Amazon, we get a little commission from it. And please do so because we do have a very expensive year coming up for covering the Olympics and uh a lot of the things that go into making sure we can get a lot of interviews for you and uh, cover them in a very fun way. One thing about shopping through Amazon, we've had Amazon there for about a year and we actually haven't made enough money on the links to get a payout. So we'd like this to be our last book that goes up on Amazon. And uh, so please uh, do us a favor, support the show that way. Help us get a little payout because a little goes a long way to making this show happen. And we appreciate your support. Let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. This is the segment where we catch up with our previous guests who are members of Team Olympic Fever. This segment is sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector is the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors and traders. It's a great place to catalog value and show off your collection. I added my Christmas present pin this week. It's pretty easy to do, and I found it to be a pretty intuitive system. And I really like having one place online where I have all my pins because I kind of keep them scattered around my office in different places. So if you like to join Pin Collector, go to uh, pincollector.com and sign up today. Thanks to our partnership with Pin Collector, we have our very own Olympic Fever pin. Become a Patreon patron or make a one-time $20 PayPal donation and you can get yours. Visit Here's Olymp- my pin. <laughs> I just keep it near me so I can look at it and say, look at how pretty our pin is. Visit olimfever.com slash support hyphen the hyphen show. So what's going on with our peoples? Samantha Schultz, who we know as Samantha Achterberg, our modern pentathlete, won first in the USAPM Olympic Qualifier 2. That was at Cal Poly Technic State University this past weekend. I think she pretty much like handily crushed the competition in the US, which is nice. Setting herself up. Yeah, exactly. Claire Egan got 16th in the pursuit at Rupolding last weekend for biathlon. I think she's got another race coming up soon. And Josh Williamson won bronze with driver Hunter Church in the four-man bobsled race at Innsbruck this past week. And I, and I think we should start referring to Josh in the way that the article on Team USA's website was referring to him. Oh. The bobsled stud. <laughs> yeah, okay. Part. Let, let, me, let me do that again. Let me do that again. And, <laughs> and our bobsled stud, Josh Williamson, which would help differentiate him from our other bobsledders, Lauren Gibbs and Nick Cunningham. 
Yes. Uh, so our bobsled stud, Josh Williamson, won bronze with driver Hunter Church in the four-man bobsled race at Innsbruck last weekend. Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. Which really is kind of a follow-up from last week about the ticket designs because there, of course, is a little more to them than we talked about last week. And they're color-coded by venue. Oh. Yeah. So there, there are four colors used. There's kind of a red... Uh, and there gets some magenta in that. There's a blue, a purple, and a green. And those are traditional Japanese colors, which are said to reflect the four seasons, first of all. But it also is a main venue area as well. Oh, well, that makes me like them. It actually, I'm so pathetic because that actually makes me like them a lot better. Right. And I have to say, seeing them now all together so Mm -hmm. on inside the games they have a graphic with all of the tickets in one place right and that definitely makes it more dramatic looking but i like that the color is is reflective of the location Mm -hmm. it it just makes it easier for wayfinding i guess you would say helps stupid people like me (laughs) oh i have to go to the blue building i have to go to the red building right and then the tickets have been inspired by the three types of rectangles used in the game's emblems, and they've also been inspired by this Japanese technique called kasane no yurome, uh, which is a color scheme used in the creation of fabrics for kimonos. So, so we just didn't know enough. We right. commented before we knew enough. Right. Gee, that never happens. <laughs> All right, moving on to some IOC news. We do need to talk about the Rule 50 that's been in the news for a few weeks. So uh, the IOC has said that protesting will not be allowed. Now, is Rule 50 new or are they clarifying it? No, it's part of the Olympic Charter. So I think a Rule 50 is about advertising, demonstrations, and propaganda. And the Olympic Charter is constantly updated. This one was updated June of 2019. One thing is no advertising, no publicity. But in the, there are exceptions to that. So like uniforms that have been made by, say, Nike, they can have an emblem on them just as long as it's not something new and out of the ordinary. And I know that Archery also has uh, released kind of guidelines to Rule 50 because the bows have the manufacturer names on the outsides of them. So there's some guidelines for different sports on to what kind of advertising they can display. But point number two under this rule says no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. And so they're making a bigger deal about this political statement, given what's been happening, probably with American football, American basketball, and then there was the two incidents at the Pan American Games. Right. So So they want to be and Megan Rapino has talked about that she was planning mm-hmm. to I've seen statements by her in various press outlets that the IOC cannot stop her if she chooses to take a knee. And the IOC is saying, Yes, we can. Right. So the IOC Athletes Commission developed guidelines for Rule 50, and they say the rule exists basically to keep the focus of the Olympic Games on the athletes' performances in sports and international unity and harmony. And 
that is a global event that's got different views and lifestyles and values. So we want to be neutral and separate from political, religious, or any other type of interference, says this document. Have they decided what kind of punishment or well, what we'll, kind yeah, of... Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. So they can. They said that you can't protest or demonstrate on the field of play, in the village, during medal ceremonies, during the opening, closing, and other official ceremonies and that if you do have a protest or demonstration outside of an olympic venue you've got to comply with local legislation on how they do stuff as well so athletes can express their views when they uh, respect the local laws but they can express their views during press conferences and interviews at team meetings and on in the media including social media and other platforms like that they gave some examples of what would be a protest and that would be Signs or armbands, gestures of a political nature, and it specifically says in these guidelines, like a hand gesture or kneeling, and refusing to follow the ceremony's protocol. What happens? Each incident is going to be evaluated by the National Olympic Committee, the International Federation, and the IOC, and a disciplinary action will be taken on a case-by-case basis as necessary. Okay. So uh, I've listened to some other news about this. And it's basically kind of a, you can't protest, but if you do, we're going to have to take this on a case-by-case basis. Because I guess it will depend on, does this become a widespread issue? Does this become disruptive? So they don't know what's going to happen, so it's hard to say what would be appropriate to manage it. Right, and it's interesting because some of the things in the news I have read have talked about how Oh, uh, because John Carlos and Tommy Smith just got elected into the uh, USA Olympic Hall of Fame. And that was a big deal considering that they had this protest and were vilified for it at the time. So and now they are seen as being champions of being true to themselves and, and making a statement. And that was now it's seen as a good thing that they did that. Right. I, I You know, the Olympics, one of the things that we have talked about so often is a product of its time and place. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting to see in Tokyo, especially kind of a country that respects authority and tradition, how that's viewed and responded to by fans. And if, and who's making the protest? Is it Americans? Is it not Americans? I think that will make a huge difference as to how it's received. Right. It, yeah, it's interesting because here in America, we believe very firmly in our freedom of speech, but not all countries get that. And even in the United States, there's been such controversy around the kneeling protests in the mm-hmm. National Football League right. and at the National Basketball Association. And then things going back to Megan Rapino, which she did with soccer. So even in the United States, there is such divergent opinions on is this appropriate is this the time and place and then the putting it at the olympics just brings it to a whole other level right because the because the interesting thing is that the protest the kneeling or the making a gesture that's what gets the attention and gives people the platform kind of to talk about however that protest also draws away from the moment. Because I do see part of what the IOC is saying is like, hey, we don't want to take away from the moment. So you did have a moment with Tommy Smith and John Carlos where 
they dragged somebody else into their moment and ruined his life because Peter Norman didn't know what was happening behind him and was unbeknownst to him was now swept up into this protest. And I wonder if what would happen, for example, if the silver medalist made a protest, but not the gold, you know, do you take away from the person who won? And then at the most recent swimming internet worlds, Mm -hmm. there was was a lot of protests against the Chinese swimmer Sun Yang, who was accused of doping and other swimmers would not get on the podium with him, would not shake his hand, would not accept their medals because of that. So then you've wrapped in doping. Mm -hmm. Is that political? Is that related to the event itself? So this could get very messy. So I can see why they did not issue a blanket, this is what we're going to do. Though, on the other hand, it would be nice to have some guidance because whenever there isn't guidance, as we've talked about with Rule 40, with Mm -hmm. the sponsorships, it leads to a lot of mess. So I'm hoping this does not become the mess of Tokyo. Yeah, I... I hope, I hope this is not Tokyo's legacy. I, I mean, it's it's very hard because people do have things that they believe firmly in and they want to be able to give those issues some exposure and try to encourage change and to make these issues better. Is this the place to do it? Or are, can you be as effective during your press conference? And are we being very American-centric? Yeah, that's that's another good point. I also wondered if this Rule 50, like talking about it now, I kind of wondered if the IOC is looking also more toward Beijing, where you have a country where you can't talk about stuff like that. It's very difficult to protest and make statements. So could we be looking at athletes being arrested? Mm -hmm. Something to consider. So I don't know. But I did want to talk about this a little bit and... I, I, it's not an easy answer. There's a lot of gray in this. It will be interesting to see how our environment changes in America from now to then, if it does change at all. Or how what happens at Tokyo affects this issue in American sports as well. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how what's happening in, Amer- in American sports is talking to the international events and vice versa. Right. Well, that will wrap it up for this week. And next week, we are getting in the pool with U.S. Olympic hopeful Mallory Comerford. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're Olimfever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever podcast group on Facebook, where you may see some pictures of me in my bathing suit as we get into the pool. Oh, all right. Not really. Not really. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Well, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. I don't think anybody came out of the situation looking good. Do, 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 do.